So glad to have you today, and uh, uh, so many of you are very special to us, not any more special than Arden over here. Uh, we got to go to her, her house last night and have uh, ice cream. Thank you very much, Melissa and Clay, for that, and Arden, we continue to pray uh, for you uh, and uh, for the best life that you can have in this world, and in the next world, there won't be these problems that so many of us have. So anyway, let us say now that today we're going to be talking about the Bible. Now, um, it was on the first slide, not on this slide. I have a question or two, but basically not many from you um, with regard to the question and answer period. Now, if I don't get some questions, it's not necessary to do question and answer period. Or we could just open the floor and you can ask them that way. But the telephone number... Okay, if you text. Now, I'm, I'm an old uh, rascal myself, and I text with one finger. Okay, but I do text. Uh, so if you text, the number is 731-410-7476. 731-410-7476. Now, that does not mean that I'm going to be in the business of answering questions after we leave the Red River encampment. Uh, let me say, at Fried Hardeman, you know, uh, we have an open forum during our lectureship, and we have a couple of thousand people probably that are there, and um, they ask questions and stuff, and we have, most of them are submitted beforehand, but some of them are not. So um, people think that I want to answer questions the rest of my life, and the answer is I don't because I'm, I'm not worthy to do that. I'm not smart enough to do that, but I am a, a pretty good facilitator which means I can generate discussion and I can tell you what I uh, have studied about that. So remember that number, 731-410-7476. Okay, so let's see. Where is the clicker? Here it is. So, so here we go. I mentioned yesterday that, well, there it is. It's right there on the slide. Duh. Okay, 731-410-7476. Um, and I'll try to go about halfway. What time is it now? Okay, my phone is, okay, who wears a watch anymore? Okay, so it's 1041, I'm supposed to quit about 1130, so at about five or ten minutes after, somebody let me know, and then we'll uh, see if, if you want to talk about some things that I don't know the answer to. All right, so here we go. Um, selective topics, God, this is not the right spot, brother, this is what we've already done, and I need to go forward a bunch of slides. Ralph, where are you? Okay, uh, go forward to the Bible stuff if you can. Thank you very much. All right, so I mentioned yesterday that the study of the inspiration of the Bible is a four-step process. And, and that would be number one, you study the inspiration, which means the God-breathed part. This is what I consider to be the miraculous part. Uh, because this is not a natural process of God speaking through people. Now, we can pray for our preacher. Where I'm from, we pray that the preacher will have a happy recollection. Have you all ever heard that before? Okay, that means we've heard our preacher before, and he's pretty sorry. Right, so, so, so what we need, he, we, he needs to remember what he has studied. All right, um, but it's not wrong for you to pray that the Holy Spirit will help you or your preacher. But I do not believe that the Holy Spirit speaks directly through me, because if he did, I would be speaking Scripture. And therefore, um, I believe in the Holy Spirit as a resource or an aid, but not taking over me and, and saying what I'm going to say. If, if indeed that were true, then I would not be making mistakes. Look at John 16, 13, John 15, 26, and John 14, 26. So with regard to that, number one is God inspiring it. However he did that, uh, I don't know that anybody here would know exactly. For instance, could the Apostle Paul order a Big Mac? You know, without being inspired. You know, could he have said, I think I'll have uh, no onion on that, on that Big Mac, please? Does that become Scripture? Or did they not know in some way when they were speaking Scripture and when they were not? Now, Paul, Peter said about Paul in Second Peter chapter 3, he said that Paul wrote some really tough stuff. And he also said that some people twist it to their own destru destruction, but that tells me that Peter knew that he was writing Scripture and that he knew that Paul was writing Scripture. Now, however that happened, I do not know. But I do believe they knew when they were writing by the Spirit of God. I do believe that they knew that because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 uh, that he had the words that were given to him by the Holy Spirit, verse 13. And he also said at the end of a really tough uh, uh, passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I think I have the Holy Spirit. 
Now, that's, a, that's an understatement, uh, hyperbole. Like, uh, for the sake of emphasis, oh yes, I have the Holy Spirit. It's not that I just think that I have the Holy Spirit. I do have the Holy Spirit. So, exactly how that all happened, I cannot reproduce that for you, but I do believe in it with all my heart. So, as we look at the four-step process, what we see, inspiration, and then somehow or another, you've got to determine which text is included in the Bible and which text is not. That's the study of canonicity. <laughs> Who remembers what a canon? Is. All right, it's a rule that you measure by. All right, and number three, how did it get transmitted? And number four, how did it get translated? So as we have time, we'll go through uh, this today. I'm going to consider that I cover this as well as time will allow yesterday with regard to the inspiration. Uh, but then we were going down some contemporary stuff that's going on about the Bible. Now, according to what Jim McGuigan said one morning when he was studying uh, with talking with us uh, preachers at seven o'clock, let me just tell you. I ain't doing 7 o'clock unless I have to. All right, but anyway, we got to be 7, and so we had very good discussions this morning. I'm not a morning person. Who's a morning person in here? Hands up. I'm going to pray for you. All right, <laughs> because I am not. I'll stay up as late as anybody wants to stay up, but I'm not so good in the morning. But he said, he said there was a professor at another university speaking in a major city to a bunch of young people, and he told them that Paul made a mistake about slavery and the role of women. Now, this is one of our professors at one of our schools who told a group of young people standing up there and said, Paul made a mistake. Now, what's wrong with those four words? Go ahead, tell me some more. I can't hear. Is it inspired or not? Now, there I'm thinking of Mary Daly, who's a well-known feminist. And what she is famous for saying is, who the H-E-double-L cares what Paul thought about women. That's what she said. And I'm thinking, you better bury yourself in asbestos. I mean, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you are talking about the Word of God that way as though somehow or another Paul was just talking about Paul, I'm thinking that's part of the problem with the generation. Now, be careful. I'm not saying that you can't send your kids to this college that I'm thinking about, but I'm saying to you, if I were you, I'd be careful the Bible classes that I would recommend. Because there are some, matter of fact, uh, who, who no longer believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. There's a book out there uh, I know the title of, God's Holy Fire, but we're not going to talk about any people, and we're not going to talk about any universities. But I'm going to say to you, be careful, you know, the schools that you recommend that somebody go, go to, especially with regard to the Bible, because they're getting really loosey-goosey here if they think Paul um, was just wrong about slavery, or that Paul was wrong about women, or that Paul was wrong about gays. Which is another argument. Paul was wrong about gays. In his time, what he said might have been accurate enough, but it does it no longer applies to the 21st century. I had a hand back there. Somebody. What did you say? You think he would say the same thing today? I think he would too. I think he would too. So, if I'm going to reach the conclusion that the Bible can make mistakes... Now, or if I'm going to reach the conclusion that there are parts of the Bible that are uninspired, I would just say to you, at some point, you've got to be concerned about where you send your kids to school. All right, and that would be important to me, at least, especially, especially if your kids are going to be preachers. You know, um, and, and so when we think about that, number two, the, and, and therefore I just made that point, the Bible is inspired but not inerrant. And that is for, from one of the books in our brotherhood, God's Holy Fire. And then finally, uh, another book that I could name and the people who wrote it would be people who think that the Bible is not the Word of God until it is read in a community of believers and then the Holy Spirit acts on that as you are reading the Bible in community. Now let me go over that again. That would mean then that this is not the Bible as it lays on this platform right here. Well, when does it become the Bible? Well, according to that point of view, when does it become the Bible? When it is read in community of believers and the Holy Spirit acts on that process and leads those people, you know, to the right conclusion. A lot of people who are changing the Bible these days are saying, well, we're doing this because the Holy Spirit led us. That. Let me tell you, the Holy Spirit does not lead you into contradiction. 
And the Holy Spirit will not contradict His Word. This is His Word. This is the sword of the Spirit. And if somebody thinks that the Holy Spirit has led them to a conclusion that is opposite this one, then the feeling that they're feeling is heartburn or something else, but it doesn't come from the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit does not contradict Himself. Why does the Holy Spirit not contradict Himself? Because He's God and... God is a God of truth and cannot lie. Part of the problem, therefore, is, and, and I don't uh, distrust the motives of the people who are involved in these changes about the Bible. I don't distrust their character. I believe that they believe what they're saying, but I don't believe what they're saying. Because this, the Bible is the Word of God if nobody's reading it. But if, if, if the Bible is the Word of God right there, the Holy Spirit does not have to encounter you as you read it because the Holy Spirit has already encountered it. He's already done that. So part of the problem that we have today is, and why there's so many changes going on among us, is that people have developed a different view of Scripture. Well, this is the hub of, the, of all the issues that you can think of. Whatever issue among the Church of Christ you can think of, I'm going to tell you what the hub is. The hub is, how do you interpret the Bible? That's going to be connected to everything else, whether it be the role of women or whether or not gays can be ordained in the, in the church, practicing gays can be ordained in the church, etc. What is the hub of the wheel that's connected to every one of the issues that you can think of is how did you get that conclusion? How did you interpret the Bible? So uh, one way that a lot of churches are changing this day is that they're saying, well, times have changed so much that if the Apostle Paul was here, he would not be saying the same message. Because the Apostle Paul would have to change what he had said because, because for instance, uh, you know, culture has changed so much. And then the third point, well, I won't know that enough. And so uh, let's talk about this. I mentioned to you three things yesterday as to why some people might argue that the Bible is not from God. Uh, let me give you a quote from one of our books. And again, I'm not mentioning people. I'm not mentioning universities. Uh, I'm not here to do the false, identifying false doctrine stuff. I'm going to let you read it for yourself. All right, so here's from the book. In recent years, the battle of the Bible has been fought over the use of one such definition, inerrancy, a term that was not used in the Bible and was not in common use to define the nature of inspiration for many centuries after the writing of the New Testament. Although we appreciate the sentiments of those who insist on this term and share their desire to maintain the highest view of Scripture, for a variety of reasons this terminology is not helpful. Human definitions simply create problems, for that constitutes an error. What, for what constitutes an error remains unclear. Although one may find satisfactory answers to these and other problems, simple answers are not always available. People who insist on inerrancy disagree about the extent to which the Bible speaks metaphorically or literally on scientific matters. Uh, therefore, the argument is because we would disagree, uh, for instance, about uh, if this is a matter of scientific foreknowledge, etc. Therefore, to insist on inerrancy is to apply standards for the authors that they did not claim for themselves. Page 41. Page 44. Scripture has lasted for thousands of years without our defending it, and it is not in danger today. Well, I'm thinking it is in danger. This is the conclusion that, the, that you reach. Okay, now uh, I have a, a few scriptures here. And even though the word inerrancy, um, I was a student of Thomas B. Warren, and he said the word is not err, the, uh, the word is err, to err is human, okay, and to forgive divine. And so we had to say inerrancy. You can say it however you want to, but let me just say in the spirit of Thomas B. Warren, I'm going to say inerrancy. All right, so whether or not the Bible is infallible or inerrant, well, what about a prophet in, in, in Deuteronomy 18 who gives false prophecy? What happens to him? Well, what, what could happen in him in the Old Testament? You can be stoned. And Psalm 19 and verse 7, in Psalm 119.89, the Word of God has been established forever in the heavens. Matthew chapter 5, 17 and 18, Jesus says, uh, I'm not here to even remove a little... Um, 
Theodos subscript. In Greek, that's a little thing that you put at the, at, at the, an emphasized phrase, and it's little bitty. It's even smaller than the letter I in Greek. And therefore, Jesus is saying, I'm not even here to remove that much from Scripture, telling you what his idea was about the Bible. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that whenever they were speaking about inspiration, they were speaking the mind of God. 2 Timothy 3 claims that every scripture inspired of God, which is better than saying all scripture inspired of God in a little, in a, in a, in a translational way, because there are scriptures, scripture just means writing. There are scriptures that are not inspired. But every scripture that is inspired is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. Second Peter chapter 1, Paul claims that these things were given by the Holy Spirit of God and they did not come from people. Hebrews six seventeen and 18, uh, God does not lie. Titus 1, verses 1 and 2, by two immutable things we know that God cannot lie. And Titus 1, verses 1 and 2, our God is a God of truth and he's not a truth of, he's not a God of error. So I'm kind of thinking you might want to back up when you say the Bible. Bible doesn't claim to be inerrant because the Bible makes some really tall claims for itself because it is a book that is beyond human production. I've already talked about that. So our times are definitely changing uh, as the Bible's reinterpreted. And yesterday we talked about these three barriers. And I told you that uh, all of these are true, but not true to the extent to which they're saying it. For instance, is it true that I cannot always reproduce uh, the first century context or the authorial intent of the person who's writing this passage? Yeah, that's true. Why? I don't know for sure about spirits in prison or the man of disobedience in Second Thessalonians. Some of these things uh, are conjectural as we try to reproduce the, te- the context of the time during when- which it was written. So does that mean that I know everything about the Bible? No. Just because I claim that I know some things ab- about the Bible does not mean that I claim to know everything about the Bible. Just because I believe in objective truth does not mean that I know exactly how long it will take for the middle of this chair to fatigue and therefore to come apart. I do not know that. I do not know exactly how much material is in the seat. I don't know exactly how much it weighs. I don't know exactly, you know, if somebody sits in it, whether or not it's going to fall or not because it's overloaded. There's a lot of things about this chair I don't know. But just because there's a lot of things about this chair that I don't know does not mean what? You don't know what's in it. It's a chair. And if you don't think it's a chair, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put it here in the aisle, and I'm going to ask you to stand here and go in a straight line and see if you can osmo straight through it. I'm going to see if you can do the X-Men thing or or the Marvel thing and just kind of just bleed right through it. I've had philosophy classes where uh, professors would say there is no truth, and at the end of the class, everybody went out the door. He would say, for instance, in phenomenology that everything is a projection of mind and there is no reality. But at the end of the class, everybody went through the door. Well, Sam, you went to the University of Tennessee. Did your classes have doors? All right. Well, whenever you went to the University of Tennessee, uh, I don't know if you had any classes with people who denied that there was truth or not, did you? You were in uh, agronomy or astronomy, I mean, uh, agriculture or something. Okay, well... Philosophers do. You know, they say, hey, why is there air? Okay, you know, we, we, you know, we do stuff like that because we want to know, you know, we ask questions like that. And so does the chair have objective existence? And what do you think? Does the chair have objective existence? Yes. Is it true that maybe you might see a little different shade of color here than somebody else, maybe if you're colorblind? Yeah, that would be true. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't have color. And it also doesn't mean that it doesn't have weight. It also doesn't mean that it's not objective. So for those who argue against the truth being objective, the problem is you're taking something that's partially true and you're trying to make it universally true. In other words, you can pick up a letter and read it, um, an old letter that you bought maybe in a flea market or something, and you may not know exactly what the author intended when he wrote this. I'll admit that sometimes it can be ambiguous. But just because I don't always know doesn't mean that I cannot sometimes know what the author meant. Number two, is it also true that if I knew exactly what people were thinking at the time the text was written, is it true that I I need to understand some more about that? N.T. Wright has has reached some wrong conclusions, I think, as an evangelical scholar. He could probably write 600 pages before breakfast. I mean, he's got book after book after book after book. And he's right in some ways. 
And in some ways, he's not right. But one of the things that he's, he's uh, thinking about here, if you accept N.T. right, can you not filter the truth through the things that are not truth? And if you want to read the book, The People of God, or something like that, well, then that's the problem. But one of the things that contributed is he made us think about what would Second Temple Jews be thinking in the New Testament? That's a, an area of contribution that he has made to make us think about this. So do I admit that it's a legitimate area? I do. But just because I don't know something about the background of what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount does not mean that I can't understand something. Number three, the same thing is true about reading today. Yeah, sometimes my wife will say something to me and I'm thinking something else. You know, and, and I could almost swear that she said X to me, but she did not say X to me. She said Y to me. Okay, and, and therefore I misheard. I miscommunicated. Last time we understood each other is when we said I do. Okay, so whenever you say, all right, so is it possible that you can misunderstand, misunderstand your spouse? Hands up if you believe that's true. Okay, is it also possible that in many cases you can come to understand what your spouse means if you act, if you, if they can get your attention? You know, they can get you off the video games or, or whatever it is. And, and to get your attention, is it possible to communicate? And the answer is yes. All right, so it is possible to understand the Bible alike. And if not, I don't know why God would give it to us in the first place. I mentioned in the Church of Christ today, the way that I characterize this, there's us old suckers who continue to believe that there are patterns in the Bible. Now, a pattern in the Bible means this is something that God gives that we're still expected to do today like the Lord's Supper or baptism or whatever else. Are there patterns in the Bible? Now, if you Google pattern, you will find out that people hate this way of interpreting the Bible. And in the last 30 years in the Church of Christ, there have been, you know, a number of books that have been written in order to try to get you away from this pattern, uh, th uh, pattern theology. And it is hated by so many. It is just wrong. It's Church of Christ to a lot of people. And therefore, it cannot be trusted because it's old. You know, it's about as stable as Sears. You know, and Sears right now is on the bubble. You know, are they going to, or J.C. Penney, or some of those places. You know, if that's the case, then is it true, you know, that we need to rethink stuff? Are there any patterns in the Bible? Therefore, I chose to show you an image of Jesus in a patterned stained glass here uh, in order to try to show you that's more the way of, of thinking for pattern, 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 pattern. Guarantee you that Thomas uh, and Alexander Campbell were looking for patterns. Why? Because they were trying to restore the New Testament church. And in doing so, they were trying to figure out what was the New Testament church like. And therefore, if we are not partaking of the Lord's Supper every Sunday, we should be partaking of the Lord's Supper every Sunday. That was a discussion between, by the way, Barton W. Stone and Alexander Campbell because Barton W. Stone admitted that they were not partaking of the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And if indeed it is a pattern, then every Sunday that we assemble for the purposes of worship should be a Sunday in which we, we partake of the Lord's Supper. So that was one another thing. Is what do you call people who are members of this, you know? Uh, actually, uh, Alexander Campbell preferred disciples. But it was uh, Barton W. Stone that preferred that we be called Christians. And so in 1832, they met in, in Lexington, Kentucky, um, and they uh, agreed that this group of people going back to restore the New Testament Christianity would be called Christians. All right, now, does that mean that it's a thus saith the Lord? It is not a thus saith the Lord. You can still call Christians disciples, and it is fully biblical. On the other hand, Man, where is your feeling? You know, where is your compassion? Have you swallowed all your compassion? You know, here's a, a little thing about the woman being caught in the very act of adultery. Um, and in, in John 7, 53 through 8, 11, I'm not going to get into a discussion about whether or not it should be in the Bible. But I am going to say, assuming that it is in the Bible then Jesus is showing great compassion which the churches of Christ have lacked. Therefore, there, uh, it's grace-centered. Grace, 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 grace. Rather than la, 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 la. But the left side is more law. The right side is more grace. And if you really believe in the grace of Jesus Christ, then there is no law. If you believe in law, you know, carrying you to heaven, then you're going to have a hard time with grace. Well, I epitomize this as something that is dividing us. Because a person who's a pattern theologist will think a certain way, 
It's called a paradigm. In, in other words, like 20 cents of paradigms. Okay, a paradigm is a different way of looking at something. So we have been taught in the Church of Christ, most of us, to view the Bible as a book of patterns. Just do what the Bible says. If there's a pattern there, then you do it. And then the new guys come along and they say, but we have missed so much in focusing on patterns. Uh, and besides that, this new generation really hates this. Well, what has what changed 100 years ago uh, whenever we kind of got away from pattern theology and not just pattern theology, but the argument from silence, which means, okay, I, I teach my students this. This is an easy way of interpreting the Bible. Okay, if you have glasses, uh, you got two lenses, right? Okay, let one lens represent when God is specific about something. God has said, this is what I want. Well, there's also a lens out there about when God has been silent about something. He could be specific or he could be silent. Now, do these two uh, operate separately? No. There's a nose bridge here. Try to wear your two lenses with no nose bridge. Okay, you're going to be... You're going to be uncomfortable all day long. Okay? Why? Because there's nothing to connect them. They are conjuncted. So, if I honor God, I need to honor not only what He says, but I need to honor His silence. There's a lot of things the Bible doesn't talk about, which gives me two possibilities. His silence means that I can't do it, or His silence means that I'm free to do it. Like Red River Family Encampment. You ain't going to find that in the Bible. Well, why do you think it's okay to come here and assemble? Well, God was silent about it, but notice that it did not change anything that he was specific about. We're not doing anything unscriptural here. It is a, an expedient to do this, like teaching at a Christian university. There's nothing in the Bible about Christian universities, but if you are sure that there's nothing about it that's unscriptural, then the silence is permissive. God was silent about it, but honoring God means that He let me make some decisions here. Did, we just came back from the Ark Encounter in, in Kentucky, and it's 500, uh, about 501 feet long. Okay, there's a lot that God told Noah, right? Did God tell Noah everything? Absolutely not. I'm thinking that God, that Noah would have said, God, do you have any craftsmen? You know, do you have maybe some uh, DeWalt tools? Uh, maybe something else that we can use here to build this big... Why is it hot in here today? To build this big old ship. All right, and so a lot of it was left up to expediency as long as God, as long as Noah didn't violate anything that God was specific about. So how should I honor the silence of God? Well, does the silence of God in somehow or another uh, mitigate against something that God has said that He wanted? So if God says He wants it, I do it. And if God is silent about it, if it does not violate anything that He says, then I should not do then, then I'm okay to do it. But if it does violate something that He has said in some other area, then I should not do it. Now this ain't rocket science. Or rocket surgery, as I sometimes say. Okay, this ain't rocket surgery. Think about your relationship with your mom and dad if you respected what they told you. Now they would, might say to you before you went on a date, they might say to you, okay, be good. Well, then you come back from the date and, and you're wasted. Um, that, by the way, has happened in our family with our with one one child. And now she loves the Lord so much and we're so proud of her. But you didn't say, Mama, not to get drunk. You didn't say, Mama, not to do X, Y, and Z. But, honey, I told you to be good. And when I told you to be good, you should understand, because you're 16 years old, what I meant when I said, be good. So a lot of this silent stuff is just treating God with the same respect you would treat your parents with. Treat God with respect. Because he's going to be silent about more things than he's specific about. And when he is silent, then does it violate anything that he was specific about? And if Red River Encampment does not, which I do not believe, of course, obviously, I wouldn't be here if I thought it was unscriptural. If it does not violate that, then you're free to do it as an expedient. So as we think about this then, that's the two ways of looking at it. What difference has it made in the past in the churches of Christ? From a book written by John T. Brown, I'm going to show you some slides.
Okay, here's the Christian Women's Board of Missions from Churches of Christ, 1904, page 164. They were elected at the National Convention in Indianapolis, which was the center of more members of the Church of Christ at that time than any other city in the United States. It was not Nashville, and it was not Dallas. Where was it? Indianapolis, 1904. All right, what do you see about that that might raise a red flag for you? That's what's happening in the Church of Christ in 1904. All right, women are taking leadership roles. They have a board of missions, which means they can hire and fire their own missionaries. They can tell their own missionaries where they're going to go and serve. They can also tell their missionaries when it's time to come home. They can determine the salary of the missionaries as well. Notice something else. This happened at a national convention, which is not the same thing as a Fried Hardeman lectureship or a Harding lectureship. A, a, a convention is not the same thing. Why? Say again? Making rules. They're making rules, which means at a convention, a number of people can vote on this, and then all the members of that particular convention, uh, all, the, all the congregations are bound by the conclusions that are reached at the lectureship. So what we try to say again and again when I do the open forum is, you know, we're going to discuss the Bible here, but we are not going to reach any conclusions for all the churches of Christ. Let me say that again. We're going to discuss the Bible here, but we are not making decisions for other elderships. We're not making decisions for other congregations. We are discussing the Bible. Because churches of Christ are autonomous, and we do not need a universal um, you know, organization. Well, let's go further. Here are deacons and deaconesses of the Central Church of Christ, St. Louis, Missouri, in 1871. Deacons and deaconesses of the Central Church of Christ in 1871. Somehow or another, somebody had to, to mess with that phrase about husband of one wife. Okay, so, somehow or another, something weird is going on here. Okay, and when, when is this? 1871, prior to the official split. All right, here are officers of the Broadway Church of Christ in Los Angeles. And when you look at the officers here of the Church of Christ, what stands out? There's a woman up there in the corner. Okay, and whenever... Uh, here would be the board of managers of the American Christian Missionary Society because there were some people, including Alexander Campbell, who thought that our mission work was ineffective because we were not organized. So if you organize into a missionary society, then the money is more effectively spent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, this board of mission had almost uh, carte blanche authority over missions. Do you know what that means? What does carte blanche authority mean? What decisions can they make? All decisions with regard to mission work. Now, Alexander Campbell reluctantly be became the first president of the American Missionary Society, but it was one of the three things that divided the churches of Christ officially by 1906, and that would be, you know, uh, the Missionary Society. Here are missionaries of the Christian Women's Board of Missions. Now, these are the missionaries that are sent out by the Women's Board. All right, what do you see here? Male and female missionaries are under the authority of the Christian Woman's Board of Missions. Now here are some statistics for you before the official split. This is 1904. The, sort of the census that kind of officially divided us was 1906, two years later. And if you came from one of those states, let's see how many churches you had. Let's see how many members of the Church of Christ you had. And let's see how many preachers you had. Well, who's at the top? Missouri. 1,700 Churches of Christ. 175,000 members. Who's number two? Indiana. Who's number three? Kentucky. All right, I'm in Tennessee and I'm getting a little antsy here. All right, who's number four? Illinois. Who's number five? Texas. You finally show up on the survey. Who's number six? Ohio. Who's number seven? Iowa. Tennessee kind of limps in there with just 560 churches and 51,000 members and 185 preachers as opposed to 700 in Missouri, and finally Kansas. Now, what is weird about this? What do you notice? Uh, give me some inferences that you're drawing from these numbers, if indeed they are accurate. Say that again? 
Okay, the population of the state at that time and where the churches of Christ were. This is where the churches of Christ were. This is where the preachers were. This is where our members were. And they were mainly north of the Mason-Dixon line. Mainly north. Now, if you live in the north part of, of the United States today, um, try to find churches of Christ in the local yellow pages. Uh, you'll find a lot more Christian churches, or it'll say Church of Christ Instrumental. You'll find them up north. Well, what happened? Well, a lot of it's politics, because Isaac Garrett, uh, owner of the Christian Standard, tried to buy, I, th I think I told you this story, uh, tried to buy part of the Gospel Advocate, and David Lipscomb said no, and so Isaac Garrett began to to, to make a dividing line uh, and, and therefore, he set up the first missionary society in Tennessee in Chattanooga. And the first building that later became Freed Hardman, some of you who went to Freed Hardman remember Milan Sitka building. It originally was bought by the Tennessee Missionary Society. And since they were in favor of the instrument, then that's how uh, things changed at that particular time. So if you think it doesn't matter how you interpret silence, look at this. If you think it doesn't matter, if your young people think it doesn't matter how you interpret the Bible and how you interpret the silence of Scripture, look at this. And look at what changed in a hundred years. Uh, okay, so the Bible is right about archaeology and history, and every other legitimate academic discipline that the Bible addresses is not going to make any errors. Um, Sam, it's not going to make any errors in your area. It's not going to make any areas of philosophy. It's not going to be making any areas... Uh, even though the Bible is not a scientific book, the Bible is not a, a, a book of philosophy, but when the Bible does tread in those areas, it does not make mistakes. That's what we're saying. All right, so um, the Bible is still relevant today because uh, how, you know, uh, sometimes our young people think, well, we've got to update the Bible. Or as uh, one guy said, uh, you know, we just need to dump the Bible. That's just causing problems in the United States. There's even a website out there uh, that's uh, sponsored by the LGBT community to just uh, get us to just dump the Bible. We just need to just, just get rid of it because it's no longer relevant. Well, I'm saying to you, God still knows you, and the same personalities and weaknesses that are shown in Scripture apply to us as well. Number two, the Bible knows your times. Does, you know, it's like God is saying, oh man, you know, millennials, you know, what in the world happened? Starbucks, Chipotle, Panera Bread, and Chacos. You know, what's going to happen? The new generation is taking over. Do you think that somehow or another, if God intended for the Bible to be relevant until Jesus returns, then do you think it's a surprise to God that culture has changed? And the answer would be, that would be a very limited view about God, as though somehow or another, God is surprised. He didn't know. Bless his heart. Okay, that's what we say in the South when we mean what you're saying is really dumb. Okay, so the Bible anticipates cultural change. Uh, you know, you can, with regard to culture, there are really three things that you can do. You can do nothing about it. And if you do nothing about it, well, uh, your congregation is going to go downhill. If you do nothing about it, you're going to lose members. If you do nothing about it and wait for double net suits to come back in, well, let me just tell you, it's going to be a long wait. So if you do nothing, you're going to hurt your congregation. On the other hand, what do people say? I will give them whatever they want. Well, that would be the idea of going off the ledge on the other side. And that would mean I'm going to just, if, if they want Shetland ponies, miniature horses in the worship, well, you're going to see them on Sunday. You know, whatever it is, you know, I'm going to give them whatever they want. And then the middle position, I guess you have figured out by now, is, is what I advocate. Now, the big words for that, I don't know that I put them up here or not. The big words for that, if you do nothing, that's called uh, isolationism, or you think you're isolated from culture. Um, there's another missiological term for that right now that I can't think of, but that's the one that I can think of. Okay, if you do everything, that's called syncretism. That means you're willing to syncretize anything into the church. Like, for instance, making some drug lords in Mexico patron saints of the Catholic Church. Drug lords. 
All right, now that would be the ultimate of syncretism. And, and I'm not saying that all Catholics would do that. But I'm saying that some of them have done that in parts of Mexico. And finally, what's the one in the middle called? That's called contextualization. That means you try to, um, okay, if I contextualize, I take the Bible from this context and then take it, please, and then pass it down, please. All right, that's the third context, and this is the fourth context, and this is the fifth context. All right, it's 11, 15, thanks. Okay, so the message of Scripture, as we were passing it from one person to another, um, did the message of Scripture change? No. All right, did the context change? No. Well, yes, the context changed. Oh, because... Yeah, because you had it first, and then he had it, etc. So the context changed, but the message of Scripture did not. So let's say that you wanted to start a, a congregation of God's people in Mexico. Is it important that you understand context? Yes. All right, because it, it's, you don't want to set up an American church of Christ. You want to set up God's family. You want to set up God's family there, and therefore you're trying to contextualize. Contextualize is 11.15... And uh, I am nowhere near finished. Okay, all right. So uh, it's it's eleven fifteen, and 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 so I've got to obey the rules. Uh, I'm not a very good rules person. My wife can tell you that, and I'm sorry about that. But uh, anyway, all right. So what questions? I had one question that I somebody asked a question about. What do you think about John Lennox? L e n n o x. John Lennox uh, teaches at the University of Oxford. Uh, he has a Ph.D. in mathematics, and he's debated Richard Dawkins at least twice. Uh, generally speaking, I have not—I don't have a big collection of his books, but I read blogs and things about him. Generally speaking, uh, he's saying some things that need to be said. For instance, he wrote a book about uh, um, about the truth of God and and Stephen Hawking, um, and then he wrote another uh, another book. Uh, that was a response to Richard Dawkins' book, The Blind Watchmaker. So he has a lot of good books out there, and generally I would support the works of John Lennox. That was one question that was submitted by somebody. Okay, do you want to just uh, talk? Um, do you want to text, or, 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 do you, or do you want to be cooler? Okay, all right. Uh, so so um, what, are you, what are you thinking today? What questions do you have? Yes, sir. The new hermeneutics, I yes. you've been making that contrast. Uh, right. Is there something out there that would help us understand yes. the new hermeneutics a Yes. Um, I, I first had a discussion in 1994 um, on the question of postmodernism and hermeneutics uh, at Harding Graduate School in Memphis. Uh, and three of us got together and talked about what does it mean, uh, you know, does your culture change the interpretation of Scripture? And the answer is, of course it does, it, but it shouldn't unless the Bible's giving you leeway to make uh, a change. For instance, there's all that stuff in Romans 14 and 15. And in Romans 14 and 15, God, uh, Paul is saying, now I've spent now all this time in the book of Romans telling you what God wants. And he wants baptism, for instance. Let's just take in Romans chapter 6, 3 and 4, he wants baptism. Well, then some of our preachers will go to 14 and 15 in Romans, and they will say, well, it doesn't matter whether you're baptized or not. Do you think Paul's a fool? I mean, he spent all this time telling you what God wants, but he also is familiar with the fact that it's going to be difficult to have harmony in the church when you have so many... Jews worshiping with so many Gentiles. Let me illustrate. Um, okay, here's two women, and, and they are, it's after church, and, and there's a potluck dinner. One of them is Jewish, and she has become a Christian. She is a, a baptized believer. All right, she's going down the table, but she's been a Jew all her life. So she's thinking, okay, some of these dishes are casseroles. And you cannot tell what's in a casserole. So if, let's say, this is just an illustration, the dishes are not labeled which have pork in them. She's a Christian, but does she have to eat pork to be a Christian? She does not have to eat pork. 
And so she goes down this table and she's thinking, That's, I don't know about this. And, and I don't know what you do in the South because we got catfish and barbecue and Jews can't eat either one of them. You know, the catfish because they don't have scales and the barbecue because of the pig bill. Okay, and so she's going down here and she's thinking this. Okay, now here's the Gentile person. She's a Gentile woman who's been converted out of paganism. And she wants to draw a line between paganism and the church. And so she's going down here and she's looking at these dishes and she's wondering, did any of this meat come from Apollo's temple or the temple of Zeus or the temple of Aphrodite? It's not labeled. You can't tell. So Paul gives an illustration. You know, just don't ask. I've been to, to places where there was unrecognizable food, hadn't you? Okay, it's kind of like, all right. I'm, and, and by the way, I've been to places. So this one woman, uh, her specialty was apricot casserole. I feel the same way about apricots as I do about green. Okay, there is nothing good you can do with an apricot. Okay, and so, but she says, Brother Gilmore, Brother Gilmore, this is my specialty. Every preacher that has ever been through here loves my apricot casserole. Well, I put it in my mouth and it just laid there like a brick. Okay, and then what am I going to do with this? You know, I cannot do anything with it. And she said, what do you think about this dish? I says, what a dish. You know, you know I mean? <laughs> and then when she ain't looking, I'm spitting it out. All right. And besides that, that woman has caused a lot of preachers to lie, you know, <laughs> that have said to her, oh, man, this is a wonderful, this is a wonderful thing. All right. So that's part of the problem of going down in the first century. Uh, what do you do? So Paul gives them the principles of Romans 14 and 15. These are areas that, you know, God has given you some flexibility. Not all the Bible is nailed down. Here's an area where you have some flexibility. All right. Um, so I would think then that the new hermeneutic is actually came from a Presbyterian minister who used it, I think, in 1976. Then it, it took over part of the evangelical world, and then the virus hit the churches of Christ. Okay. And um, does it involve some of the things that we've been talking about? Yes. But do remember that even though as we pass through these times of intense cultural change, that the Bible is the Bible, and you keep on teaching respect for Scripture every way that you possibly can. Because if indeed we lose respect for Scripture, we have no right to exist. Have no right to exist. So keep on teaching what the Bible says. And any other questions? Okay. That's quite all right. We know of a small congregation where uh, there was a minister. We hired a minister and uh, it actually spit the church because he would read stuff out of the scripture and say, it says in the Bible, but I don't believe it. You know, he needs to be working on cars. You know, he needs to be doing something else. Okay, the question was, they uh, know about a minister who would stand up and preach and then just say, now the Bible says this, but I don't believe it. What do you do if you're worshiping in a congregation like that? Well, if you don't have elders, then you probably do the next best thing and, and, and go to the men of the congregation and, and say, you know, we're really concerned about this. If you do have elders, the elders should still listen to how the congregation feels uh, and have input from the members but there is, this is controversial. If you have elders, there is no need to have a men's business meeting. Why? Because a men's business meeting is for the purpose of input to the eldership. So if you're going to have an eldership, the elders are the ones who oversee, and a men's business meeting kind of, oh boy, I'm going to get in trouble here, kind of flies in the face of the women. I mean, what are the women supposed to do? How are they going to give input to the eldership? Because there's the men's business meeting. What probably happened is that there was a men's business meeting before there were elders, and then they appointed elders, and they kept on having the men's business meeting. Well, sometimes the men's business meeting can continue to operate as a body of authority. But I'm going to tell you that if you have elders, there is no authority with a men's business meeting. Amen. The only thing that they can do is give input to the eldership. And besides that, I'm an advocate of congregational meetings. 
where men and women can say to the elders, this is how I, f I feel about this point. This is, uh, maybe it's because I have four daughters. But I, I, I'm just telling you, I, I, we should value the women in giving them more of a resource to the eldership than we often currently do. Uh, that's, well, that's controversial. Okay, what else have you got? Yes, sir. You mentioned writing by N.T. Wright. Yes. N.T. Wright does a good job in helping to rebuild uh, Second Temple culture so that we can understand more and embellish understanding of the New Testament text. For instance, The People of God is a good book to read, and he has a series of books like that. Part of the problem with N.T. Wright, however, he's reached a conclusion that I cannot reach, and that is where we are now is, is heaven. I'm not saying it's like heaven. I'm saying that when the curse is lifted, then heaven is going to be on earth. Because in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, there is a word there uh, that is difficult to interpret. Uh, it can mean uh, one word that is used in 2 Peter 3, 9 through 11 is the word for scorched or burned off, like you would burn off a field. Well, it doesn't destroy the field. It just burns it off. So a lot of people believed in the scorched earth theory, and N.T. Wright is uh, very influential in doing that. I'm not saying that it's a matter of fellowship, but I am saying to you that I can't go there. And the reason why I can't go there, because we say our Father in heaven. So if indeed in the last day, uh, heaven is going to be moved to earth because the uh, curse is going to be lifted, and like finding Nemo, sharks no longer eat fish, you know, uh, and that kind of stuff, uh, because the lion and the lamb can lay together, Isaiah 41, etc., uh, well, then that's the problem. It must be time to quit because I don't have a microphone anymore. Okay. Is it time to quit? Uh, maybe I'm in a dead spot. So that would be one of the places where N.T. Wright would go that I, I couldn't go. Um, what else? Yes, sir. We know that from Exodus chapter 3, I believe, Yes. Sinai was in Midian. And yet all the maps show it's location, I'm not sure what it's called. Okay, so where exactly is Midian? Uh, in, in Exodus chapter 3? Yeah, I mean, why, why, why do Maps differ on this. Why can't they show Sinai and Midian? Well, here's part of the problem. Um, because the text seems to, to indicate that there's a possibility that the Red Sea was the second body of water and not the first. So when they crossed the second body of water, that would have put them east of this body of water, and therefore Mount Sinai would not be at the traditional location. Now you can still go there and visit, and it's a wonderful visit, but there is some historical evidence that it might be on the other side of, and therefore that would interfere with your map of Midian and where uh, the the ark is. Now, if you want to read about that, uh, just Google, you know, the location of Sinai, which is also Mount Horeb, and you can see both sides of the issue. Archaeologists have not agreed on this, although most archaeologists would still agree that your maps are accurate, but there's a number of them that are not. Well, so you got to watch them. Who cares? <laughs> hey, Ron. I'm sorry, brother. All right, it's time to quit, I hear. Thank you for coming to class. Thank you. Yeah.